and wondered whether I was a, a visiting preacher. For those of you who don't know, I've been on staff here for about five years, but, um, you know, it's not uncommon with, with our, our uh, large congregation and people coming in and people moving off, and so uh, it, it gets confusing. And to make matters worse, not all of our staff hang around this church. We've got a couple staff in other places, and Steve Newman, standing behind me, is one of our church staff. It happens, though, that he is uh, placed in Singapore. Makes it a little difficult when we uh, have our staff meetings, but we manage. (laughs) About two years ago, we made a decision as a church. Steve was uh, on the pastoral staff here, and we became aware of the need in Singapore that seemed to fit Steve's gifts and his interests the way God was leading him and leading us as a body. So we chose to send him there to continue him on staff, but to put him on loan to Singapore Bible College. And that's where Steve has been ministering. Steve and Holly and, and their uh, three children have been ministering for the last two years at Singapore Bible College, training uh, men to go out and plant churches throughout Asia to feed the body that exists there and to advance the kingdom of God. And that's what we're all doing. That's what we're doing here. And that's what Steve is doing for us and and with our assistance and as a partner with us in Singapore. Tonight, we're going to uh, have the opportunity to to learn a lot more specifically about that ministry. And I encourage you to come. Those of you who know and love Holly and Steve will want to be there just to have more chance to be around them. Those of you who don't know them yet, uh, come and see what we as a church are doing in Asia. It's, it's part of what you are doing as a part of this church. So I, I want to encourage you that Steve's going to have some slides and he's going to uh, be able to make us all more aware of that ministry. So we have asked Steve to come and bring a message this morning. Uh, Steve is a man that I respect greatly. Just the opportunity I had to learn under him in my initial training and then to, to work with him here at Cole Church, uh, Cole Community Church, my respect has grown and multiplied, so I'm really excited about this opportunity to, to hear what he says and to be ministered by the Spirit through him. See? Thanks, Chris. Well, it's a great joy to be back here. I wish that I had uh, time right now just to come down and hug a bunch of you. They'll have to wait till tonight, I guess. Uh, we want to express as a family our appreciation for all of you and how much love you've given us through your letters, through your gifts, through your uh, financial support, your prayers, the uh, ladies gathered food for us. We could move into a home with some food in it and uh, toys so our kids could play with toys and all this. We, we really appreciate it. And uh, uh, just are very glad that God has, has made us part with, with you all here. Well, two years ago, as Chris said, I received a letter from Singapore Bible College asking me to come and to help train uh, Chinese men and women to be pastors, church workers, and missionaries for Southeast Asia. When I told my parents that we had accepted this invitation, my father's first response was, why do you have to go 10,000 miles away? Right here in America, there are lots of people who need Christ. As a matter of fact, in Dallas, Texas, which happens to be where he lives, there are a lot of people I know who are not Christians. This is the natural response of a father's love for his son. But that's a good question. Why should I uproot my family, 
and go halfway around the world when there's so many needs right here. You might be asking yourself, why should we as a church send somebody over to Singapore? And you can probably think of different jobs in the church that don't get done because there's just not enough people to do it and you wish, why don't we have more here? Why should we worry about the rest of the world? And that's the question that I want for us to investigate this morning. Why worry about the rest of the world? And I want to investigate it by looking at a missionary letter, and that's the Epistle to the Romans. So turn with me to chapter 1. Now, if you read chapter 15, you'll find out that Paul was intending to go on a mission to Spain, and he was preparing for that trip by telling the Romans, I'm going to come there, and I want you to be ready for my coming. And I'm hoping that you'll be, uh, provide some financial backing for my mission to Spain. And that's one of Paul's uh, reasons for writing this. This is one of our first missionary support letters in history. Now in this, we want to look at three factors which motivate Paul to a commitment to world missions. The first one we find in verse 14 of chapter 1. Paul says here, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. He says, I am obligated, or as it reads literally, I am a debtor. Now there are two ways that you could be a debtor to somebody. I could be in debt to David if I were to borrow some money from him. But I could also be in debt to him if somebody were to give me money to give to him. I would also be in debt. That's the second way that Paul is a debtor to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise and to foolish, to the whole vast scope of all of humanity. And we, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, share that debt. Because God has entrusted to us the responsibility to take this message of Jesus Christ to all men. Now, you know that uh, David Roper has gone this morning. He's off in uh, Spokane at the Young Life Retreat uh, Conference. Suppose, you know, I have uh, $10 in my pocket, and suppose that I saw Jeff sitting there and I thought, well, uh, I have $10, but I'm not going to give it to him. What would you think? You wouldn't think anything. But suppose that David gave me $10 the other day and said, I'm not going to be there Sunday. You give it to Jeff. And I saw Jeff and I saw, well, I need some money for lunch today. I don't think I'm going to give it to him. What would you think of me? Well, you'd think I was a crook, and I would be. What would you think if somebody had entrusted to you the gospel to take to somebody else? You'd say, well, I just don't feel like it. I feel like just having it for myself. That's what some of us do sometimes. Paul says, I am a debtor. I'm under obligation to all men because God has entrusted to us the gospel to take around the world. During the last two months, my family and I have been traveling around America, meeting with family and friends and supporters. And we've had a, a, met a variety of people and had a variety of responses. And quite a number of people have said, upon learning that we live in Singapore, Singapore? Do you like it there? <laughs> and Holly said very perceptively to me, she felt like saying to some of these people, that's not really relevant. There are certain things we do like about Singapore, certain things we don't. 
But we're not there because we like it. The issue is that we're there under obedience. God has committed a trust to us, to his whole church. And to me in particular, as, as Chris said, given me certain abilities that fit in with the ministry there that they needed. Paul says, I'm under obligation to all men. That's the first motivation that we see, uh, moving him, directing him to a commitment to world evangelism. That all men are the scope of, the oblig of his obligation, not just those nearby, not just those like him, but Greeks and barbarians. The Greeks would be the educated, the sophisticated, the cultured. The barbarians would be those, the tribal people, like uh, the Levites go to in Suriname. No written language, no uh, built-up culture. And Paul says, to all men, I'm in debt. Look in, in verse 16, we'll see a second factor motivating Paul and his commitment to world mission. He says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that it is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What we see here is that Paul has an overwhelming conviction that the gospel is true. It is the power of God into salvation. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why might he be ashamed of the gospel? Well, many years ago, an early Christian preacher, John Chrysostom, said this. He said, how could Paul not be ashamed of the gospel and of bringing this gospel to the imperial capital of Rome since he was to preach of one who uh, passed for the son of a carpenter, was brought up in the despised province of Judea, in the house of a poor woman, and who died like a criminal in the company of robbers. And even today, the gospel is such that we're tempted to be ashamed. We're tempted to, to feel embarrassed to go to say to the people that Jesus Christ is the answer for the world. And we confront the, the uh, strength of political power, the profundity of, of philo man's philosophy or technology or material power and strength. Sometimes we feel embarrassed to say, no, that's not the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And why is he not ashamed? Well, he tells us. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel of Jesus Christ works when nothing else will. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Suppose that you were, uh, had a hobby of uh, tinkering with engines and you developed an automobile engine that really worked. Well, if I were you, I'd be proud. You know, it'd be something to make something that really worked. But then you took your engine out and you tested it and it took a gallon of gas to go one mile down the highway and you thought, well, I'm not going to tell anybody about this. But suppose you then developed another engine. And this one got not one mile to the gallon, but 500 miles to the gallon. Well, what would you think? How would you feel? You'd go to your friend and say, I've, I've developed an automobile engine. It gets 500 miles to the gallon. They'd say, that's ridiculous. If the Japanese can't do it, you can't do it. Uh-oh. Coming unhooked here. Nobody, nobody peek. 
Let's just go. But in spite, of, in spite of their ridicule, in spite of their laughter, you would do all you could to, to market and sell that engine. And if you went home and you, you called your parents and said, I'm, I'm quitting my job, I'm mortgaging my house, I'm selling my cars, all my assets, my retirement fund, I'm, I'm liquidating for this project. They'd say, don't do it. Don't be ridiculous. Be sensible. And your wife would say, you know, would cringe and would beg you, please provide security. Think about the children. But if you knew that this engine really worked, really got 500 miles to the gallon, then nothing would deter you. No ridicule, no pressure from anybody else, nothing. And you would, uh, you would persevere, get it patented, market it, and sell it, and then you'd chuckle to yourself as you put your first billion dollars into your savings account. <laughs> Paul says the gospel's the same way. I know it's true. I don't care how many people laugh at it. I don't care how many people ridicule it. I don't care what that man says down at the office who says, I don't need religion. I have all that I need. Uh, I can provide for my own needs myself. I know that he's lost. I know that behind his facade of self-sufficiency there's a, a hurting heart because God made man that way. And I know that it's not his uh, stock portfolio which is going to save him. I know it's only Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. This word he uses, salvation, is a word we're very familiar with, but was, uh, is a picture word. In Paul's day, it was a word which was commonly used in secular circles of delivering somebody from some kind of disaster. For instance, it would be used of, of delivering someone from a military disaster. It would be referred to as salvation. Or saving someone from shipwreck would be referred to as a salvation. And so the Bible takes over this word to refer to our spiritual salvation. So when Paul uses this word, he's picturing the lostness of man. And we can uh, carry along this picture and see man as someone who is shipwrecked in the middle of the ocean. And what does materialism do? Many people worship materialism today and think it's the key to success. Well, we can picture materialism as a ship passing that stranded man in the sea. And does it save him? No. It throws him a can of light beer and a little pocket computer game and says, uh, you only drown once, so, so go around drown with all the gusto you can. <laughs> it does nothing to save the man. Or what do other religions do? The other religions of the world uh, are basically built upon self-help through man's works. What's well, like the ship passing that man in the ocean, throwing him a book that says how to build a sailboat and then sailing on. Well, the drowning man can't save himself no matter what kind of instruction he's given. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because this is the only thing that will save a man. No other religion, no materialism, no humanistic philosophy, nothing else. Now, it's common for many people in America to think in abstract about world religions and to think and, and to say, well, all, just as all rivers run to the sea... So all religions uh, take people to God. What sounds very sensible, as long as you don't investigate it. 
Being in Singapore, my family and I get to see the major world religions in practice. Because Singapore is a multicultural, multi-religious society. We see Muslims. There are, are mosques scattered around the city. About 20% of the people of Singapore are Muslim. And they have big loudspeakers in the top of the minaret, the prayer tower. And five times a day, the loudspeaker calls out, oh, 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 something like that, <laughs> and uh, uh, calls the people to prayer. And they start at 4.30 in the morning. I don't get up and pray at 4.30 in the morning, but they do. They're working, and, and they're thinking that through their works, they might earn their salvation. We have a part-time servant who's a Malay woman. She's Muslim. And during the month of Ramadan, all faithful Muslims are supposed to fast during daylight hours. So she gets up about 4 o'clock every morning during that month, makes a huge breakfast, and uh, she and her family try to eat enough to get through the day. And then during the day, there's no, no lunch, no coffee break, no sip at the water fountain, nothing is to pass their lips until the sun goes down at night and they have another big meal. Through this kind of work, she is trying to earn her salvation. But the Bible says that, that God is just and that all sin must be punished. Think of how ridiculous it would be if I were charged of a crime to go to the judge and to say, Judge, it's true that I murdered this person, but that's only one law. Look at all the laws I kept. And I, I marched for dimes. I gave the United Fund. I helped an old lady cross the street. Surely my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. He would say, well, all that's irrelevant to the crime you're being charged for. You, if you've broken this law, you must pay the penalty. And my friends, that's what God is going to do in the judgment day. There are 800 million Muslim people in the world today. And they need for us to bring them the message of salvation by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. They're trying to save themselves. We also see Hindus in practice in Singapore. There are about 600 million Hindus in the world today. They're almost all in India. All Hindus are Indian. It's an Indian religion. But the number of Hindus in the world is roughly equivalent to the population of Canada, America, Mexico, Central America, South America, and the Caribbeans. That's how many Hindus there are. Now, Hindus believe for the most part that, that ultimate reality is one. God, if you want to call it that, encompassing both good and evil. And they have 330 million gods, which are manifestations of this ultimate reality. In the Sri Maryamam Temple in Singapore, we have seen a, a painting on the wall of the mother goddess. And she has four arms. In one arm, and, uh, she's holding a head severed from the body, which she has cut off. The next arm, she has a plate into which is dripping blood from the the head she's cut off. And then she's holding in this arm a sword, also dripping with blood. And in this arm, a trident spear. And from her mouth protrude big, sharp fangs. This is one of their gods. Because if God is everything, God is good and evil. And you never know what the gods are going to do to you. And so you're always worried. You have to uh, appease the deities. And Hinduism, as it's practiced by Indian people, is a religion of great fear. Once, uh, one day a year in Singapore, the Hindus have a, 
uh, a fire-walking festival. And they put a big bed of burning coals and certain people who, who uh, gear themselves up for it walk across the bed of coals to try to uh, appease for their sins and to, uh, to uh, make, themselves, make the gods pleased with them. Another day of the year, they have the, the festival of Thaipusam. In this festival, they take spikes and pierce them through their, this cheek out the other one or through the tongue or the forehead and then they put on their shoulders uh, uh, a 40-pound contraption with bars sticking out this way and up and peacock feathers are on the, on the top and it springs and so it bounces as they walk and, and from the end of these bars are about uh, 40 small chains about the size of a heavy necklace chain. And at the end of each of these is a hook, which is, which is hooked into the chest or the back. And then these devotees walk from one temple to another, about two miles. Why? Because they want to appease the gods. They want to atone for their sins. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. He would say today, I wouldn't be ashamed to go to a Hindu and tell him about Jesus Christ. Because I know that worshiping idols, as they do, worshiping uh, trying to atone for their sins through self-inflicted pain is not going to save anyone. Today there are over a, a billion Chinese people in the world and uh, a large majority of them wor worship according to the Chinese traditions, not all today. In Singapore about half the Chinese are agnostic. But we see them worshiping and we see them taking uh, incense sticks like this and they come into a temple which is filled with a number of different idols and they light the incense stick and they bow down to the idol trying to, to uh, get petitions from the idol. We've seen in another temple, we went in one and a man was there with a big slab of uncut bacon and he would go to the idol and the Chinese love pork and so they think the gods must love pork too. Smear the bacon on the, the idol's face hoping to you know, bring him a gift that way. Uh, we can see them going and out on the street corner with magical charms like this. Across the top it says prosperity. Down the center, longevity. And they hope through burning these to, become, to, to grow old and to get rich. This is the, the center of their religion. Or we see them burning in stacks money like this. It says hell banknote. Uh, $50 million. And they believe that as they burn this, the essence of the money will go up to the spirit world. And the spirits in hell will then have money that they can spend to buy things. And if they have provisions for themselves, they won't bother people in this world. What well, sounds silly to us. It is. It's ridiculous. Paul says further later in Romans 1 that, that when people have rejected the true God their minds become darkened. They don't understand the truth. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation. Nobody's going to save himself by burning paper money to, to uh, evil spirits or by bowing down before idols with a slab of bacon to rub in their mouth or giving them an incense stick. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God into salvation. We see then the second basic motivation pushing Paul on to his, his mission is his overwhelming conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. 
and it alone is true. Turn with me to Romans 15 and we'll see a third factor impelling Paul in his mission. Beginning in verse 18, Romans 15. Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building uh, on, another's, on someone else's foundation. And he quotes scripture from, from the servant song, song of Isaiah 53 to uh, support that this ambition of his is in line with scriptural teaching. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. In other words, because I want to build where there are no Christians, I haven't come to you in Rome, though I've wanted to. Because there are Christians there, so there's no reason for me to come. Verse 23. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I uh, go to, to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me in my journey there. In other words, give missionary support. Uh, after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now look back at verse 19 and let's, let's picture a big map of the Mediterranean right here in front of us. And we start with Jerusalem, go up to Syria, to Cilicia where Paul is from, Tarsus, over to Asia Minor, Ephesus, uh, over to Macedonia where Philippi and Thessalonica were, down to Greece where Corinth was, and up around the corner to modern Yugoslavia. And this is Illyricum. And Paul says, from Jerusalem, round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel. And he says in verse 23, there's no more room for me here. Now let's think about that for a minute. A different kind of analysis would lead to a different kind of conclusion. Why, after all, there were a number of cities, but only a few cities, the minority of cities that even had churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And in those cities... The churches were all in a small minority. How could Paul say, I have fully preached the gospel? And how could he say, there's no more room for me here? Why, well, he could have gone to any of these cities to evangelize, to go to the surrounding villages to do so. He could have settled down in Ephesus or Corinth to pastor those larger churches if he wanted to go into semi-retirement. They definitely needed his help, as we can see from reading the epistles. How could he say there's no more room? Paul could say this because he was a man of strategic vision. And this is the third factor we see impelling him towards missionary work, his strategic vision. It's true that there were Christians, there were churches in Jerusalem and in uh, Tarsus and in Ephesus and, and uh, Philippi and Corinth. But there were no churches whatsoever in Spain. There weren't any Christians at all in Spain. What Paul wanted to do was to begin the church in these different areas. 
and then have the turn over the work to those people and have it continue to spread throughout the world. He was a man of strategic vision. Let's see if we can understand this by taking an analogy. Suppose that you were given uh, a parcel of land, a thousand acres that had been denuded, and you were given a flatbed truck, and it was filled with, with saplings, maybe a thousand saplings. And your assignment is to turn this thousand acres into a forest. Well, what would you do? Would you drive the truck into the land and stop it in the first acre, take all the saplings out and plant them all there, and say to yourself, well, at least part of it looks like a forest? Would it certainly be easier to plant it there? No, you wouldn't. You would scope out the land and you would try to space the saplings out over the land in such a way that over the years they could, they could grow, they could give seed and produce trees of their own around them so that eventually the whole of the land would become a forest. And Paul says, that's my conviction. Yes, there were plenty of needs all along these places, but there are also other Christians there doing the work. And there is nobody in Spain. But it was this kind of thought that led me to go to Singapore. When I first went to Asia three years ago, I, there were five of us pastoring here, and I went other places and found a single pastor in charge of a larger church or a pastor in charge of five churches in some of the lands I went. And in all places, I found a, a shortage of Christian workers. And it seemed to me something's not right. Why is it that, that 50%, I'm told, of all Christian workers live in America? Full-time Christian workers live in America working with only 6% of the world's population. Now, that's not a very comfortable thought to start considering, particularly, uh, particularly if you happen to be a pastor, like I was, because the only logical conclusion is to say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to go if you want me to. It was this kind of strategic thinking that led Paul to, uh, to want to press on beyond the borders of the gospel and to go on to, to Spain where there weren't any Christians at all. There is much work to be done here in Boise, but there are also many churches. Uh, when I was, was visiting my wife's parents in North Carolina, they retired, moved up to the mountains. They live in a small, in a, a rural area, and there are only 5,000 people that live in their county, and yet there are 84 churches there. Uh, you know, they're all small. I preached in in uh, uh, Holly's parents' church when, when we were there and there were about 50 who came and they said that's the largest turnout she can remember ever seeing. <laughs> and there's some that are, much, that are much smaller than that. But it seems from our perspective, now I'm not one to judge anybody, but it seems from our perspective strange or, or uh, unfair. Why should there be 84 churches for 5,000 people when in many parts of the world there aren't any churches at all? Paul is a man of strategic vision. And thus he says, let's look beyond ourselves at the whole world, at these 800 million Muslims, and send the Browns over to, to uh, minister to them. Let's look at 600 million Hindu people. And I don't think we've sent anybody there. Uh, let's look at the 
billion plus Chinese people and see whom we can send to this group. If we see Paul's, the factors motivating Paul, he saw that there was an obligation. We as a church, not only Paul as an apostle, but all of us as a church have been entrusted with the Great Commission. God has entrusted to us the gospel to take to this world. Secondly, it's a matter of, of logic due to the fact that Paul is convicted that the gospel is really true. He's not ashamed of it because the gospel really works. It is the power of God into salvation. And thirdly, we see Paul as a man of strategic vision. About uh, in the 1500s, a man named Francis Xavier, who was a Roman Catholic missionary, went to Asia. He was placed in charge of all of India, Japan, and China. And he thought uh, about his old colleagues, old friends back in Paris at the theology school at the Sorbonne. And he said his heart broke because he, he remembered that many of them were, were squabbling over who would get which position in which church. And he wrote uh, to a friend, I wish I could go back to the theological halls of Paris and shout down those halls Give up your small ambitions and come east. We see here in this passage that Paul himself was a man of great ambition. He says in verse 20, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ uh, has not been known. Now there are many here who have a great ambition for God in the church. But like all people, we tend to be very narrow in our vision. In our, in our sight. We tend to be concerned only with what goes on around us. And that's true here in Boise, Idaho. It's true in those churches in North Carolina. It's true in Singapore. But God wants is for each of us to become world Christians, concerned for the world. And he's asking each of us to, to become committed to praying for the world. Take your prayer bulletin. Pray for Greece, as it's listed this morning. Tremendously needy country. He wants us all to give financially to help uh, send missionaries to these needy lands. And he wants some of us to go. He wants some more to say here to say, okay, Lord, I'm willing. Send me. I'm ready to go. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we glorify your name together this morning. We thank you for the tremendous privilege you've given us of having lives that count because they're involved in those things which are eternal. Lord, save us from pettiness. Save us from small ambitions that don't really count. Help us to see the world as you see it. We pray for ourselves, for this church, that you would use us more fully. Give us clarity of vision for the lost world. Give us rational thought that we might consider these 800 million Muslims and billion Chinese and, and uh, 600 million Hindus. And I pray that you would raise up people from our midst to go to take the gospel to these lands. And I pray for help and encouragement for taking the gospel here 
to people right here in Boise as well. We thank you for your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.